Hello, Dave. Hello, Matt. Jesus, it's been a while. <laughs> Thank you for the extra week. No problem, no problem. How did things go with the Goyles at their uh, at their activities? Uh, great. In fact, I I dropped uh, Natasha off the theater, ran to the copy store, and made copies of the blue line I made for Matisse, so, and bought the ink and the brush I used. So it was one of those... I got stuff done, I just, you know, couldn't be on the phone. Right, right. Okay, here we go. Here we go. It's, uh, as you say here, it's past that time of the month, and thanks for that, so here we go. Uh, last time it was my turn to remember Jeff, but you took my turn to discuss his guide to self-publishing. That's right, I forgot that. And thank you to you and Steve for it. No problem. So this time is your turn, but I got a ringer. It's uh, Steve Peters, who's running a crowdfunder for his latest comic verse book, Comic Verse Behind the Counter, number two. And congratulations, Steve. He's, uh, I don't think it's just my imagination. I think he's getting these books out faster than he used to. Uh, this one's got a lot of, uh, he's got a lot of uh, guest artists. So I think that might, might be part of part of it is just that he's he's got more he's got more help pushing the boulder up the hill. There you go. There you go. I think okay, so uh, you're going to you're going to read a uh, Steve Peters Jeff memory. Yes, uh, he sent this in to me, and then I forgot to acknowledge I got it. So he sent in a second message going, "Hey, did you did you get that?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I got it. Sorry, I forgot to respond." But. Uh, <laughs> Siler's Story for Please Hold, from Steve Peters. Hey Dave and Matt, I've been wanting to tell my one and only Jeff Siler story. I can't remember the actual quote from Dave, and I'm too busy to try and go back and find it, but it was something like Jeff had a tendency to be annoying without trying, or was unintentionally annoying, or something like that. I think it was Space 2007, perhaps, the year I received the Dave Prize or at least one of the years that a large gathering of service yahoos attended. As I've done for many years, I was doing free sketches on my Awakening Comics sketch cards for anyone that purchased something. Following Dave's advice in the Guide to Self-Publishing, the first sketch would be really good so that the recipient would show it off and other people would come around wanting one too. So Jeff came around, bought a comic, and I did a really nice sketch for him. A little later, he came by again, bought another comic, and I did another sketch for him. Later, same thing. Around about the fourth or fifth comic, I was really wanting to shake him and say, Dude, just buy a bunch of comics and I'll do a really big, super detailed sketch for you. He's the only person that ever did that. And that's, yeah. that's Steve's story. And when I read it, I started laughing because a few years back, Wanting to just draw more and, and not find, giving myself a reason to draw more, I offered up on the blog of anyone that wants a free sketch, I will send a free, I will send a free drawing to, you know, and I had a couple that I had done that as, as a mock-up of, okay, you know, this is, this is kind of, it's going to be a half an eight and a half by 11 sheet of my cardstock that I like to draw on, and I, because you know, it'll fit in an envelope and it's, you know, Tell me you want free stuff, you know, send an email saying you want free stuff and give me your address and I will send back free stuff. And Jeff commented of, 
I'll take all of them. And I was like, that, that's, that's not how this works, Jeff. <laughs> you, really, you really do get a lot of that, don't you? The, uh, that's not how we're doing this. That's not how we're doing this at all. I, you, you would think that I would get better at explaining things. <laughs> you would, yeah, you, you, would, you would think, but you'd be wrong. Exactly. Okay. Uh, next, uh, two bits of strange death of Alex Raymond business. Uh, first, here's a letter Al Foster sent Bill uh, Kniff. And this is when, uh, it, this goes back to uh, 19, 1938. And this is uh, uh, when Foster was still in Topeka, Kansas. So that's that's going back a ways. He's uh, he's a year into doing Prince Valiant, so he's a much happier camper than he was uh, when he was doing Tarzan uh, prior to 1937. Uh, I like his heading, Milt Kniff. <laughs> Somewhere in China, I guess, uh, because uh, almost all of Milt's stories were uh, Terry and the Pirates were centered centered in China uh, in the in the pre-war years. Uh, Dear Milton, I would like to be the best funny book, art, funny paper artist in the U.S. if people like you and Alex Raymond would quit stepping on my fingers and getting in my hair. There doesn't seem to be anything I can do about it except learn how to draw, and that is the reason for this letter. Would you be so foolish, I mean, would you be so kind as to let me have one of your Sunday pages so that I can study it? See if there's anything in the way you do it that I can steal. In return for this favor, I will send you one of my Prince Valiant pages, if you wish. Beyond a doubt, this will give you the give me the best of the bargain, and you will be justified in squawking. In that case, I will send you only a blank sheet, which will be of more value in that it can be put to some good use. Uh, if you are too mean to send me a page, or if you object to my stealing your stuff, just say so, and I won't object. But you might see one of my pages come out with Val saying, quote, Milton Kniff is a heel, unquote, uh, hoping that you are properly intimidated by this threat and will consent to exchanging pages with me. I am yours truly, Harold R. Foster. I think this, this supports my uh, uh, contention in, uh, in Strange Death of Alex Raymond. Uh, that these guys really didn't know how to how to deal with each other. Practically overnight, um, well, uh, Foster had been doing Tarzan since uh, since 1929, but uh, um, Raymond and uh, uh, Kniff were relatively new, and then suddenly uh, they're the kings of the Sunday pages. I mean, they were definitely the guys that uh, when you hit that page while you were thumbing through uh, Buck the Comic Weekly or whatever it was, you were getting your giant Sunday pages in. Um, it's like, wow, this guy can really draw. And you would say that about all three of them, but for uh, for different reasons. So there, there's, a, there's a weird, well, okay, uh, we know who who the kings of the castle are, uh, and we see each other's week work every week, and we're all getting terribly impressed 
not only with ourselves, but with each other. Um, how, how do we deal with each other? And it's like there, there really wasn't, uh, wasn't much precedence for that in, uh, uh, in the comics field because most of the guys were real, you know, working class or even, uh, even, even poorer than working class guys who were suddenly making hundreds of thousands of, thousands of dollars when, uh, when there was no income tax and just doing funny pictures and, and making gags. And it's like, okay, well, all we can do is, uh, is go out and, uh, and get ourselves drunk and buy way too many cars and way too many big houses and uh, basically just stay out of the way of our wives. Um, the whole bringing up father kind of thing. So uh, I appreciate, uh, who was it that found, found this letter online? Do you remember? I can't remember, but the, that showed up and within a day, somebody posted the clip of Hal Foster on This Is Your Life from 1953. Right. I haven't seen that, but that's... I, uh... I watched it going, well, it's, I mean, come on, they got to bring out you know, one of his peers, and it was like, no, it's, it's you know, the girl that he had a crush on when he was 14, uh, the guy he wrote, the guy, his buddy in Canada, who, the two of them decided to go to Chicago together, you know, we're going to go move, we're going to emigrate to America on bicycle, uh, right. and, like, his buddy halfway there went, this is miserable, I'm going home, and he went, nope, I'm going to Chicago, you know, by bicycle, uh, yeah. I'm trying to think who I mean, there was a couple of old girlfriends. His wife eventually comes up onto the stage, and you know, and and then at the end, like they bring out a bunch of people, but they don't introduce anybody. And I'm going, none of these guys look familiar. It's probably all old high school f friends that they could, you know, hey, let's let's get everybody out of on a plane and fly them to Los Angeles for the weekend. Right. Uh, right. I'm trying to remember what the. There's an actress who she's she she is Hal Foster and his wife's uh, contact. It's they're at the studio as guests of her, and she's there for whatever made up reason. And then she comes on stage and goes, "Well, actually, I'm here with my friends." And that's when it's oh, and they take the you know this is your life book and walk out to talk to Hal Foster, and he's kind of got a look on his face of. That this isn't really happening, and oh yeah, no, it's happening, Hal. You're going up on stage, and we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, do you recognize this voice? And of course, you know, it's. I mean, uh, I'm a huge Firesign Theater fan, and on their third album, they have a uh, a made up 1940s uh, movie star who, at one point, you know, he's an old guy, and it's it's. Yo, what are you gonna do when the original actress that played Bottles falls through that trap door? And he he goes, "Oh God, that woman's trying to kill me." Right. And right. It, you know, so watching this is your life. I always think back on that. I'm like, I mean, how many times do you think it happened on the show where it was, "Hey, here's your old roommate." It's like that guy owes me money. Thanks for finding him. Right. Well, that's that's the whole thing. It was there was more more pretense to it than actuality, but everybody thought that they were watching something actual. I mean, the only reason that they did This Is Your Life for, um, for Hal Foster was because the Prince Valiant movie was coming out. 
Um, it's okay. Uh, there's X number of ways that we pump up a, uh, a comic car- a cartoon property um, uh, in the in the real world, and Ralph Edwards is is one of them. Which is why, uh, I, if you if you look at it and, and, and get a proper distance from it, it's. Uh, yeah, why would you bring this person on? Why would you bring that person on? Because they knew, okay, this is what Mr. and Mrs. America wants to see, is uh, um, what what they would have if they were um, on This Is Your Life and Ralph Edwards was uh, was telling them stuff. But it had, it had very little to do with, uh, with actuality. Um, so... Uh, the Steve that brings us to the Steve Lieber uh, shared on on the Twitter uh, the new book about the illustrator Austin Briggs as an anecdote about the time Briggs and Alex Raymond took so much speed while working on Flash Gordon they went off the clock and made uh, hentai yeah yeah it's uh, oh boy does this open a can of worms <laughs> it's like, this is. I saw it on Twitter and went, that's a, something that, A, I should send Eddie for the slush pile of, hey, here's a weird Sodar-related thing. And then I'm like, no, I'm just going to throw this on the please hold pile because I don't want to wait for Eddie to finally get it to you and for you to finally find it. <laughs> okay. Because right. I'm like, I'll, I'll this is weird. Reading the excerpt, according to Dad's account, and this is uh, the son of Austin Briggs, uh, he and Raymond once worked round the clock to meet an overdue deadline. Desperate to catch up, they began popping Benzedrin to stay awake by the time they inked in the last panel as Don found themselves, at dawn, found themselves too hopped up to rest, let alone sleep. To burn off their highs, Raymond and Dad amused themselves by creating a t- continuation of the sequence they had been working on, the Ice Kingdom of Mongo. Uh, the story featured the sexy uh, Freya, queen of Phrygia, who ruled an underground kingdom guarded by, guarded by giant ice worms and menaced by a glacier monster whose octopus-like tentacles snaked their way through ice tunnels, which is a very strange encapsulation of Ice Kingdom of Longo to, uh, to begin with, but uh, let's, let's leave that alone for a moment. Working with their reading of the subtext of the story, my father and Raymond produced a hilariously pornographic Sunday strip in which the tentacles became very free indeed in their dealings with a by no means frigid Freya of Phrygia. Uh, okay, <laughs> this, gets, this gets into, well, first of all, uh, uh, all of Raymond's work on Flash Gordon was done at the Mayapple Road House. He did not have a studio outside of the house, so this is the, this is the family house, and um, so I, I I can certainly understand that Briggs is coming over uh, to work on at at the house. Uh, I forget how young their youngest child would have been at that time, 19, uh, 1939. Um, I, I pulled out the book and I've gone through it and it's like, okay, the part that they're talking about, the tentacles and 
Uh, I, I have to admit, Kingdom of Mongol has more phallic in, imagery in it, unconscious, I would assume, phallic imagery, than uh, just about any t- any ten entertainment forums you could you could pick out. Um, so the idea that that they uh, uh, whoever the, uh, the youngest child was in the Raymond family in uh, in 1939 would have been like five six maybe something like that. And uh, the idea that you would work around the clock and suddenly as the sun's coming up, suddenly start producing a pornographic uh, Sunday strip um, while uh, Helen uh, Helen Raymond is getting up and the littlest Raymond is uh, getting up and the next littlest Raymond is getting up. Uh, That just doesn't wash. That's that's one of those... um, Austin Briggs was definitely anti, 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 anti comics work, uh, including his own. Didn't like that comic books were starting to become more respectable, and consequently, I think, started manufacturing um, these kinds of stories and exaggerating things. They might have they might have joked back and forth about, "Hey, we could do this," um, ha ha ha. But uh, the idea that you would work around the clock and then keep drawing and draw a pornographic version of um, uh, the Ice Kingdom of Mongo, and that just doesn't wash. So it's, and it would be, I think, however, his son heard the story, sons do tend to exaggerate their father's stories. Like you do find out uh, okay, can you go and ask your dad if if that actually happened? And it's like, uh, actually, no, it didn't. He said, uh, no, that that middle part in the, in the story, you, you just made that up completely. But it's very funny. You know, it makes it a much better story, which is usually what happens is uh, uh, something that makes the story funnier is preferable to 100% accuracy. Um I, it, it, the, the quarrel is really between uh, Ron Goulart, who uh, maintains that Austin Briggs did a lot of the work on Flash Gordon, was basically either Raymond's assistant or ghosted a bunch of them. And um, I tend to side with uh, Tom Roberts, which is, um, no, uh, Austin Briggs worked on Secret Agent X-9 because uh, Alex Raymond got, him, got himself in a situation where he was just doing way, way, way too much work between Flash Gordon and Secret Agent X-9. It was very lucrative, but he just couldn't draw that fast. So he learned to divide um, his, his attention. I'll work with Austin Briggs. You know, thank you for finding this guy for me. And he will do a lot of the heavy lifting on Secret Agent X-9 because on Flash Gordon, I want to do everything myself. It's uh, Flash Gordon is my baby. I don't want anybody working on Flash Gordon uh, the same way that he didn't want anybody else working on Rip Kirby. If this is my thing, this is my thing. And uh, I'm going to do it. from beginning to end. I think there there definitely was a situation where Raymond got pneumonia 
at one point. And it's like King Features is going, we, we really don't care uh, how much you care about this comic strip and how much it's your baby because it's not really your baby, it's our baby. And we want our baby done and at the engravers by, you know, whatever it was, like a week from Thursday. And then uh, we want the next one, uh, you know, the following Tuesday because you're just, uh, you're giving us the runaround. And it's, uh, you're, you're not producing and we've got hundreds of newspapers that need to have these Sunday strips in there. So, uh, sorry, uh, Austin Briggs is going to help you on this. Uh, so I think that Austin Briggs, um, my theory is, uh, having looked at uh, Ice Kingdom of Mongo, which I think is the germ of truth to the story. Uh, if you look at, um, I don't know how many people have the Ice Kingdom of Mongo handy. Uh, I know I do. If you look at the October 1939 strips, there is like three or four of them in a row that are just, <coughs> excuse me, absolutely jaw-dropping, uh, starting with uh, October 8th, October 15th, uh, October 22nd, October 29th. Um, the, the balance of black uh, and the white and the effects that Raymond was doing of, um, you would take red pen and you would draw on the original in red pen, outlining where the white area is going to go. That told the engraver, anything that's outlined in red, just leave the interior of that white. And uh, um, obviously inking the black uh, to, to create lighting effects. And I'm pretty sure that Raymond, probably coughing his lungs out, is explaining to Austin Briggs, like, this is really, really important to me that this has to look right. Here's the theory that I'm working on because the lighting effects on the translucent uh, or transparent um, uh, winter gear that everybody's wearing, um, this, is, this is how I'm establishing that this is uh, uh, transparent and this is, this is how it's got to be done, showing him probably proofs from the preceding two or three weeks where he started doing it and saying, like, this is what I want. And, it, and it's got to be, you know, it's got to be high quality. It's got to be, uh, and it, uh, I'm pretty sure that Austin Briggs was picking up on what Raymond was saying was, don't do a Secret Agent X-9 on this. I didn't, by the time uh, you were working on Secret Agent X-9, I didn't give a crap what Secret Agent X-9 looked like. I was putting all my time in on Flash Gordon. Consequently, I think Austin Briggs went, okay, you know, this is, uh, this is a guy that I've worked with. Uh, this is a lucrative gig. Um, I'm here to help him get back on schedule. And I understand that it's really, really important to him that this looks really, really good. So he looked at what Raymond was doing and went, oh, okay, I know what he's doing. Um, he's, he's not quite as good at this as, you know, uh, the other big market 
uh, illustrators are, but I understand what he's trying to do. Here, I, I will, you know, you, you pencil it and you tell me where you want to do um, uh, whatever it is that you want me to do, either the solid black highlights or um, putting in the red outlines to show where the white goes. And uh, it's, it, it's, it's Al Williamson level of quality in, in 1939. There's one wide shot with the, with October 15th. Uh, the first panel is a wide shot, and it's unbelievably beautifully lit. Where uh, whatever Austin Briggs was doing on it, whatever Raymond was doing on it, Raymond didn't have to do all of it, so Raymond could concentrate on making it the absolute best that he could make it. And Austin Briggs is going, well, it was just day at the office stuff for me like I understand you know what he's talking about here's the light source it's in the upper right corner of the panel and uh, you know they're um, flashing their flash, flash Gordon laser thing into the, into the upper right corner so all of these characters are lit from uh, from from that that light source and it's just it's it's miles beyond what Raymond was doing at the time, um, and that, and it upped Raymond's game. Uh, from then on, he's uh, the establishment of light. The this this is where the light is coming from. This is where the uh, the highlights are. Uh, it's just absolutely jaw dropping because uh, he didn't have anybody else working on it who went. Uh, there's basic day at the office stuff that you're not getting here, but um, you know I'm here to help you get back on schedule. You tell me where where I fit in, and uh, I'll work on those panels, and uh, you work on your panels, and I'll be in Scotland before you. <laughs> and uh, it, I, that's that's what I'm seeing here. That, uh, um, that's subjective viewpoint. Um, you, you're never going to convince. Ron Goulart that Austin Briggs didn't do uh, most of the work or a good chunk of the work on Alex Raymond's pages and that uh, Austin Briggs ghosted a bunch of pages. But uh, if you look at Austin Briggs on his own, that was the guy that they gave Flash Gordon to uh, when uh, Raymond went in the army. It's like, mm, no, it's... Uh, he wasn't he wasn't drawing at this level because when Flash Gordon became his thing, this is it. He's just supposed to deliver Flash Gordon. It's like, well, they don't know what they're looking about, looking at. They don't really care one way or the other as long as it's Flash Gordon and Dale Arden and Doctor Zarkov and all the faces look the way that they're supposed to. Uh, that's it. I can I can mail in most of this, and that's that's all I'm concerned about. I, I'm going to put in my heavy lifting on magazine illustration that's going to be seen by uh, real people and get me more real jobs. Um, so it was, uh, well, okay, now it's, uh, it's please hold for a day, Sam, and, and this is what we're talking about. So uh, I pulled it out and it's like, yeah, I, I remember looking at the October 1939 pages and going, no, this is just this is just world above. This is, uh, you know, if you look at uh, 
at Flash Gordon's boots. It's like Raymond had been doing much, much better, you know, glossy black boots than he'd been doing, but uh, he wasn't at that um, Al Williamson level where you just go, how can you see that? How can you know that that brush stroke and that brush stroke will make this look exactly like, um, you know, uh, black, shiny military boots? And uh, I, I would credit um, Briggs and Raymond playing off of each other. It was probably a miserable month for Raymond whenever they were, produce, were producing those. It would probably be September, uh, August 1939. Um, you know, what a horrible thing to go, well, how do I do this when I have pneumonia? Well, not easily. Let's, let's put it that way. I just grabbed my, I own three volumes of Flash Gordon, I grabbed the third one because I'm like, oh, that's about the right time, and it ends in July of 39. There you go, yeah, yeah, I've got, I've only got three of them, I forget which one I'm missing, but uh, you, 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 you can't find those no more, it's like, uh, they're, they're really, really good volumes, they're definitely, they're shot from, uh, I think, uh, the printed comic strips. But the white is white, and the blacks are black, and the colors are accurate, uh, which is uh, an amazing, amazing technological achievement. So, uh, Steve, in answer to your question, or uh, answer my uh, question, Matt's question, Matt's question: Do you think Raymond kept up his benzedrine use, and could that account for the shakiness in his line later in life, or do you think he gave up the drugs? And that led to the shakiness. Uh, speed isn't really like that. It's uh, it's just gonna it's just gonna keep you awake a lot longer than uh, than you would ordinarily stay awake. It's not a it's not a jittery high like uh, like caffeine. So I would say uh, I I don't really think that um, you know if. If this, if this is, again, I come down on Todd Roberts' side that uh, it, there's, there's pages in here and we can argue about which ones they are where Austin Briggs helped Alex Raymond when he had pneumonia. Um, if you have pneumonia and you're dragging yourself to your drawing board, you're probably not going to take Benzedrine on top of it. It's, uh, that, that's, anybody's going to know that's probably not going not gonna to help a whole lot. Okay, well, I just was th right. I was just thinking. There's the old. Uh, they did a biopic of Johnny Cash called "Walk the Line," and at one point they're backstage at a. You know, he, he's on the road, and with the band, and they're backstage, and somebody offers him some pills, and he's like, "I don't know if I want to take any of that stuff." And they're like, "Oh, it's it's fine. Look at Elvis. He's taking them." And th the camera pans over to Elvis, and Elvis is walking like the way he dances. <laughs> Right and and, I'm right. Going, and and I know that there was that mentality for the longest time of well if it's prescribed by a doctor it's not drugs it's medicine so I right. I just didn't know if you know maybe Raymond had a, you know legal drug problem or uh, with, there's no there's no way of knowing that one I mean uh, uh, this is this is the first time that I've ever seen. Uh, the association um, 
of you know Benzedrine with uh, with Alex Raymond, and the fact that it's coming from somebody who was really, really, really bitterly anti comic art, comic artists. You know, this is ridiculous calling this art. No, magazine illustration is art. This this is complete pap. Um, he's he's not going to be a a reliable witness. I don't think personally. That's that's my assessment. Okay, that's. I mean, it's one of those ways that it it, it it came across. I came across and went. Well, that's interesting, you know. And I figured send it up and see what happens. Well, I I got to tell you, it's uh, it was a real real day brightener for me today. Uh, going all oh, these pages, and uh, yeah, I could spend uh, I could spend a very happy week just looking at the Flash Gordon. October 1939 pages uh, that uh, wouldn't apply to the pages around. Uh, MJ, Mike Sewell out in California asked, Hey, Manly Matt, here is my annoying and overly intrusive monthly question for Dave. Where would we be without MJ, Mike Sewell's uh, annoying and overly intrusive monthly question? <laughs> uh, doing all doing all my obsessive service and Dave Stem research way out of order. Question: What is the current state of the Cerebus archive plan? Who are the caretakers? Who is? Uh, where is it ultimately going? Uh, important point. No, for the record, I do not want Dave to die. Thanks, MJ Mike Sewell. To which Matt replied, Mike, it goes to Eddie. He's the successor, Manly. And then Mike said, great, it's just that the saga of the archive's final destination has changed many times over the years. Uh, up to you and Dave if you want to talk about that. Thanks for the update. Uh, yes, the, the idea is um, there, uh, the, the easiest way to keep everything uh, in order and to make sure that everything is passed on um, to future generations without just sort of scattering to the wind, uh, I figured out a while ago is, well, okay, apart from um, the pages themselves, everything is in the off-white house and in Camp David. So that's what I want to do is leave both of those to a successor. Um, which a lot of people disagree with, but that seemed the most sensible thing to me. Um, because the sheer, the sheer volume of material, which, uh, you know, I know where everything is, but then <laughs> I've lived here for 30 years. So, uh, I, you know, I know, I know just about where everything in uh, the off white house is. Uh, I don't know where things are in Camp David because uh, Rolly's in charge of Camp David. So um, as an example today, uh, uh, Mike Jones, uh, who, uh, who works with Bill Oates, uh, came up from, from Michigan to pick up um, the off-white house copies of Journey, uh, which was a long box. And 
uh, autographed all of those. Bill Lopes will autograph all of those, and then they will get them slapped through CGC. Um, then I went out to Camp David last night because I go, okay, um, I, I, I pulled out the long box of journeys and said, you know, Rolly, keep track of these because at some point uh, this year, Mike Jones is coming up from, from Michigan on his way to Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, I'm going to want to autograph all of these. And I went out back and I could not find the box. <laughs> and it's like, how do you hide a long box of copies of Journey? Uh, and I left a phone message for Rolly saying that, you know, when, when you come in tomorrow, pull all of those out, put them out for me to autograph. And when I went out back, there they all were. And it's like, okay, I give up. Where were the Journey? And it's like, the journey were in the, uh, the same spot, but uh, he, had, uh, he had turned the box lid around. So it was the old box lid where it was Cerebus back issues uh, listed on it. And it's like, wow, what a, what a criminal genius. All you have to do is turn the box lid around and Dave Simmons absolutely lost. You might as well have just stolen all of, all of the off-White House journey copies. So... Uh, um, but getting back to uh, uh, Mike's question, uh, the biggest current concern that I have right now is um, when, uh, whenever it happens and, and Eddie becomes the new president of Argard Manaheim, uh, is he going to move into the White House, off White House? And uh, the, one of the biggest elements to that is Eddie lives in Vancouver, and Vancouver is much, much, much less winter-like than southern Ontario tends to be. So I picture him even, you know, with, with all the best wishes in the world going, okay, I'm the new president of Aardvark, Anaheim. Uh, I'm going to wrap up things with my day job and uh, move to Kitchener and move into the off-white house. I picture him along about the middle of December going, how do people live like this? <laughs> this? This is insane. This is like living inside a refrigerator. And all these people are walking around as if this is normal. Uh, you know what I'm talking about because you live in Wisconsin. Yeah, no, that's, I haven't turned the heat on yet. And Paul and I are, it's pretty much every, every night we look at the forecast going, is it going to get close enough to freezing that we want to turn the heat on just to keep the pipes from freezing. And and we kind of had an argument where she's going, oh, we don't need to do that. I'm like, I'm not dealing with burst pipes. So, yeah, but so far it's been, oh, it's it's in the 40s. We're good. We're good. And as soon as it dips to 36, it's going to be close enough for me. I'm, I'm putting the heat on at 50. And, you know, the kids will just have to wear sweaters. I don't care. I'm right. trying to go. I'm trying to go as long as I can before I have to start using the heat. But yeah, that's you know I, I could I could see Eddie, you know, sending out messages of hey, if you guys want to support Arvard Vanheim, sweaters and blankets. Yes, yes, and and space heaters. I've I've got this uh, this Mister Freeze theory. Remember Mister Freeze from uh, the Batman TV show where uh, uh, he would just have, uh, have this this control box that uh, would heat these little square areas. And 
that's really how, how, how I live at the off-white house. I have a space heater next to the drawing board, and I have a space heater in my bedroom, and a space heater in, uh, in the work office upstairs. And wherever I am, uh, I put the space heater on. Apart from that, it's really not, not livable in here. Uh, the, the joke about Canadian winters, that uh, um, Canada has four seasons, June, July, August, and winter. Um, so I think, I think uh, long story short, uh, it might turn out to be a um, Roly being the on-site custodian at the off-white house, and Eddie Connor will be the remote president of, uh, of Aardvark Van Eim uh, in Vancouver, where, uh, okay, they got, they got major, major junkie problems down at the you know, downtown east side, but uh, at least it's, uh, it's, it's more livable temperatures. So uh, not, a, not at all annoying, not, uh, not overly intrusive. Um, it's, uh, you know, if, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, then, uh, then people can say, well, he did talk about Eddie staying in Vancouver and, and Roly being the, uh, the on-site custodian. Uh, let's, see, let's see how that goes, which is one of the things that I like about uh, Please Hold for Dave Sim. I can, can always give people the, uh, the, the best current information as, as the president understands it. What did the president know and when did he know it? <laughs> On to Michael R. of Easton, Pennsylvania. Axe. Uh, hi, Matt. Hope you're enjoying the beginning of autumn. Burr. No more short pants for me. Uh, here's my questions for Dave. That's another thing when, when you're living in uh, Pennsylvania, southern Ontario, or Wisconsin. The people who keep wearing short pants as if that's going to make things warmer. And... Uh, we're, we're at that at that in-between stage where the people who are already bundled up for winter are looking askance at the people in shorts, and the people in shorts are looking askance at the people in, uh, in winter clothing. Uh, hi, Dave. Last month, you answered a question from Mike Sewell about Canadian comics and printing. My questions are, one, how long have you been purchasing CGC Canadian variant comics? Uh, well, I haven't been purchasing them. Uh, I've been trading them for uh, service and hell copies. Uh, Doug Salipa um, likes that as as part of uh, his business model is trading dollar for dollar. He he will trade um, four dollar service and hell comics for a uh, hundred dollars. Uh, you know, twenty five twenty five copies of each issue and he gets uh, the same numbers <sighs> which numbers does he get i think it's 51 to 74 that he gets each time and because they're uh, they're not witnessed by somebody from cgc he wants them not signed so that's one of the first jobs that really has when the new issue comes in pull out uh, Doug Salipa's 51 through 74 and put them aside. Make sure that, uh, that Dave doesn't sign those. And um, it's, uh, 
it, it's a it's almost a pleasant surprise. It's a pleasant surprise on the one side uh, on the one side of it because uh, when when the uh, the box comes in from Doug Salipa and he uses uh, Canada Post boxes and wrapped unimaginably securely. Um, it's uh, I've been trying to exercise the wrist a little bit more, just doing stuff that I haven't been doing for for years, just to go. Well, okay, I think uh, it's maybe not getting better, but uh, it's it's one of those. I'm back to the don't baby it stage, and I opened the second last box that came in, uh, which turned out to be uh, Web of Spider-Man number one in uh, 9.6, I think it was, and uh, with the Charles Vest cover. And uh, boy, by the time I was done opening that box and peeling off all of the plastic wrap and cutting through the tape on all of the plastic wrap, it's, it's a complete um, Maltese Falcon kind of thing, just like slashing away <laughs> with the exacto knife. I've cut to get the black bird out of this packaging. And uh, then um, the, the web of Spider-Man was uh, um, the BGZ grading and what it was going for at market was uh, about 250 US. Uh, and then uh, the next one was uh, Thor 339, which uh, that came in uh, just during last week. And I went, that's too quick. It's, it was only a, a 150 or something like that. It's like, that's too quick. I, I, I don't want to open another Doug Salipa package this <laughs> soon. I want to exercise the wrist, but I don't want to torture myself. So I left it out back and uh, sat and watched Rolly opening it uh, this morning. And it's like, it's not my imagination. These, these are really, really tough packages uh, to open. If, if you buy anything from Doug Salipa's Comic World, online and you're going gee i hope i hope he wraps it securely trust me don't worry about it it's uh, uh even the most psychotic postal worker could absolutely absolutely never damage a doug salipa cgc graded book uh number two how big has your collection got uh i went and counted them i got 16 of them now um, so it seems like more, I've, I've got them in the upstairs covered with, uh, uh, a bunch of the Dave Sim file copies, uh, that I've got. And, uh, uh, it, it like I say, it, it, it seems like more, um, just because it's really cool to own all of them and to know that as long as I keep doing, uh, Cerebus and Al, uh, I will always have more of them coming in. Uh, number three, have you seen the value of any of them increase so much to say, hmm, that was a good investment. Uh, that's that's kind of a given right now. I haven't even checked it. I just, uh, I told Doug, like, I'm, I'm coming to the party a little late, 
by the time I found out about them, um, when the twenty uh, nineteen uh, Over Street Guide came out, and suddenly there was a lot more talk about uh, the Canadian price variants, and that they are price variants. They're not. They're not foreign editions. They're the same comic book with a different price on the front. So that puts them in the category of the uh, 35 cent Star Wars number one, which the prices have just gone berserk on. That's one of the most valuable uh, bronze, if not the most valuable Bronze Age comic. Um, so it's, it's a matter of saying to Doug, um, you get me as much book as you can for the price, and I'll leave it up to you as to which ones are the best bets. So, consequently, I'm not getting as good books. Uh, they're not as, as key books as they were, but I did get um, Spider-Man 252 with, uh, with the black costume, and it's like, well, you know, whatever, whatever I traded for for that, um, two years ago, uh, when I started doing this, uh, I probably couldn't touch it now. It would be, uh, no, you, you got that when, when it was possible for you to get that. You can't get that anymore. Same thing with uh, the Archie's Turtles number one, uh, the Betty and Veronica with the, uh, the first uh, Cheryl Blossom appearance which is supposed to be the the most valuable or the third most valuable Canadian price variant. Uh, well, okay, you know, I got those. I got those when I got those. Doug will will keep me in the game at whatever whatever level he can keep me in the game. I'm not really I'm not really checking uh, to see how they're doing. Uh, I think they have to take root in uh, in the collecting environment. For well, it, one of the reasons that I say that I think that uh, uh, Spider-Man 252 is in a different category, and uh, the Thor 337, the first Walt Simonson Thor, uh, is in that category uh, because the people who are obsessive collectors of Spider-Man and Thor, uh, both of which are expanding populations because of the Marvel movies. Um, as they find out about this, it'll be, okay, I have to have uh, at least a 9.2 or 9.6 Thor 337 with the $0.75 cent cover price on it. Uh, how much is that going to cost me? Well, you're talking about a very small pool of copies, and you're talking about... Uh, um, people who, who have them and can afford to put whatever price that they want on them. Um, just like blue chip stocks, you're probably better off not checking that every day. Uh, check that every six months or if you can manage it every two years or, or every three years and you'll be, you'll be pleasantly surprised. But uh, I, I really can't recommend Doug Salipa's um, Comic World uh, any any more highly in terms of uh, if you're if you're spending the money, believe me, you will get the book in absolute perfect condition, and you will get it really 
really, really quickly, which is really you can, all you can ask for from uh, from somebody that you're buying uh, CGC books from. Doug Sulipa, S-U-L-I-P-A. What was, uh, there was a heritage auction around the time that the issue four original art was coming out. I think it was the, the one of the next auctions after that they had a bunch of Canadian price variants listed, and I, I mean they were going for super cheap. But then again, it's you know it's the the only reason these books are in the auction is that they're Canadian price variants. It's not that these are the key issues. Like I think there was a two fifty two in there, but and that one went for money. But like there was some stuff that they could get. The, at the time I saw it, it was like a dollar or two dollars, and I'm going, well, you know, it's one of those where it, it you know, some of these books are going to be huge, and some of these books is going to be, well, that book was, is worthless as an American edition. Right, right. I mean, that's that's why they call them key books. Is uh, key book uh, evolves uh, in the marketplace. Um, the marketplace will tell you what a key book is. I think a lot of what's happening with heritage auctions now is a lot of people who are uh, buying um, on heritage auctions are buying for investment, and they have absolutely no idea about comics whatsoever. They're just attracted to this environment where the hockey stick curve um, keeps staying a, a hockey stick curve. And consequently, uh, they just watch to see, okay, uh, where does the bidding suddenly start going berserk? That's the one I want, which I think is what happened with the, uh, the service number one pages, as opposed to the, uh, uh, the, the later Cerebus page. The, the later Cerebus page went for you know, a very respectable 1500 or whatever it was. Uh, but the, uh, the service number one pages went viral, went, went more viral than the complete issue four. And that just, uh, that just fed on itself. And it's like, you can't make that happen. But when that does happen, it's like, well, okay, uh, there you go. That's, that's a lot of what, uh, what I've been, uh, you know, devoting my entire life to is to try and have Cerebus considered valuable. And uh, okay, that's a that's a major credential in terms of uh, of, of real world value. And uh, yeah, I, I I think there's still a toss up between whether the uh, Canadian price variants are the 35 cent Star Wars number one, or they're just uh, foreign editions. It's just, uh, these are the ones that went to Canada. It's like, I don't really have to have um, Spider-Man 252 from Canada, Canada any more than I need the uh, Spider-Man 252 from South Africa. I know that they're there. I'm an obsessive Spider-Man collector, but I'm not that obsessive, or I'm not obsessive over in that direction. Well, that's, uh, trying to think. I have a Spider-Man number one, the, the, uh, the Todd McFarlane book. And 
all the Todd stuff is so weird for resale because there's newsstand editions and then there's the direct market edition. And the newsstand editions, for some reason, are worth more. And yeah, like, that makes sense because the, the newsstand stuff gets, gets you know, bent over forward on the, on the spinner rack and, and stuff like that. So, and it's, it's usually, a, it's a much smaller market than, than the direct market is the theory. Keep going, I interrupted. Well, so, like, when Spider-Man number one came out, there were the five covers, and I managed to get two of them before m my mom and my brother went, it's the same damn comic, why do you need all five? And I'm like, because there's five of them. It's neat. And you, <laughs> you, you gotta remember, this is 1991, and I'm like 12 years old. Right. And... So I got the new or the the regular edition where it's colored, the platinum edition with the silver ink, and then like a year or two later we were someplace and they had a five pack of all five issues, you know, like a, like a Kmart, and my brother and I each bought one because at you know the the Spider Man number one's worth money, and in that pack was a gold ink number one. Which apparently, it because it's a newsstand edition, is the highest of, of all of them. And I'm going, you know, it's one of those, like, two or three years later, my brother and I are selling a bunch of our comics because we need money. Because, you know, we're poor teenagers. And he sold his, and I think, you know, we paid five bucks for the pack, and he sold his for 20 or 25 I still have mine, and I keep going, I should really send this in and get it graded to see what kind of grade I can get. And then I'm like... Yeah, but I don't want to be that kind of collector. But it, it's, you know, it's one of those. It's like there's money on the on the table, and you're leaving it there. You have two other copies. It's not like you can't read the story. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, that. That's the thing. It's like that's that's why the uh, the market dictates where that's going to go. It's like uh, no, you can you can say that and. Uh, uh, um, you can you can try and stick to it, but you're you're going to uh, probably eventually argue yourself out of that and go, okay, I'm not that kind of collector, but some things I've got to be that kind of collector because not being that kind of a collector is, like you say, leaving money on the table. Um, the same as. Uh, um, JR was uh, was up visiting from Texas um, the end of August, and uh, he told me that he's uh, he's a uh, former former store owner and uh, art collector and comic collector, and uh, he he wanted to uh, put an addition on his house. I think it was, and it was. Uh, um, he had bought a page from uh, Giant Size X-Men where Dave Cockrum introduced <laughs> the new X-Men and he paid Cockrum I think a hundred uh, for the page at the time and he ended up selling it for whatever it was 35000 or something <laughs> and it, it's like well there you go it's, it, you, are you going to say JR that makes you that kind of collector, 
It's like, well, do you want an addition on your house or you don't? Do you not want an addition on your house? At the same time, uh, you'll never be able to buy that page back. Uh, you'll you'll never you'll never get it for thirty five thousand a year. And that's like one of the things in my collection that I mean, it, it's something that I have that I do not necessarily want, and I definitely don't need it. And it's on my pile of, okay, this is something I should go and get graded. Because I don't have any graded books, but this is a book I can see paying to grade. Is, uh, the Umbrella Academy first appeared in a free comic book day from Dark Horse. It was a free comic book day issue. And I have one. And it doesn't have a stamp from the store on it. And it, you know it's in fairly good condition. And my friend, who I let store stuff in my basement, has one. And I'm... I kind of told him, like, I might be taking that as rent. And he's like, yeah, whatever, I don't need it. So I have two of them, and I kind of want to send them in, because if they're in good grade, I know I can flip them for hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, because, you know, it's it's the Umbrella Academy. It's it's the biggest thing since sliced bread. You know, right. for people that are into that kind of thing, like my niece, I don't care. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's... Uh, um the, the leverage is always there, and then it's. I mean, my my theory all along has been uh, uh, never sell artwork uh, you can't replace for money that you don't need. And it's like, well, we're getting into an interesting time period now where it's like, well, define need. Um, you know, uh, the the inflation is kicking shit out of everything. Uh, pardon my French. Um, but it's, uh, if you, if this is the only thing that's appreciating and everything else that you've got in your life is depreciating and, and costing more for the same thing, um, then, okay, you, you, that's still a solid theory. Don't, don't, don't sell, uh, a rare comic book that you, uh, that you can't replace for money that you don't need and try to define your own needs correctly. Um, one of the kids needing a new cell phone, that's not a need. <laughs> that's, uh, no, you can't have dad's spare comic book to buy another cell phone. You've got a cell phone. Uh, all of that kind of thing. Um, well, it's, um, it's one of those, I want to get them graded not so much, you know, so I can sell them now. It's just to get them graded so I know that, okay, yeah, this actually is what I think it is. Unlike, like, my two sets of uh, Brat Pack, because Brat Pack, I mean, that that's the greatest comic series ever. That's worth millions. And it's like, no, the Brat Pack's relatively cheap. If you've come across it, you're not going to be breaking the piggy bank to get it. But at the same right. time, when I got into Brat Pack, it was, oh yeah, Brat Pack's the greatest thing since sliced bread. I have to have a second set of these. Right, right. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's all kinds all kinds of different decisions. I mean, what, okay, moving moving on to well, Ian. Well, well, asked, well uh, wait, one last ahead. Canadian price variant thing. You do have amazing two thirty three, which. Ironically, is the first time I ever encountered service in a Bud Plant ad. Really? Yeah. How about that? I I, I, I have to go and uh, crack the case open now so that I can see that. Uh, no, no, no. I, I can just want to send do. you a fax of my copy. That's a much better idea. 
that's a much better idea. Um, now that we've figured out how to get the, uh, the faxes light enough so that I can, but I can see what's there. You, you did, you, you done good with the latest one, which, which we're coming up on, but we're not there yet. Um, Ian asks, hi Dave, it's Ian from Louisiana. Hello Ian, I uh, hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you. Uh, I saw an interview years ago during the following Cerebus days. You mentioned the possibility of a volume collecting all miscellaneous Cerebus material that was feasible. Uh, I've heard your reply before on the Epic stuff, and I understand the issues with that. Uh, but has there been any more thought given to a volume 17 or the, <laughs> how do you pronounce this? Ardvarkrifa. That's a, that's a good coin term. Can we have our Ardvarkrifa volume, please, Grandpa? As I like to call it. Um, there, there's, there's thought given to it. Uh, we just solicited uh, the diamond. Uh, diamond previews came in today with the uh, uh, the last day uh, solicited um, as a remastered edition. Uh, so that's going to be dovetailing with uh, uh, the Waverly Press hardcover. We have to. Uh, we have to see how that goes. It has to be, uh, have we figured out how to do both of those so that uh, they get to people in a timely manner and they get the diamond in a timely manner and it's not tying up uh, a lot of Argard Van Heim's currency and Waverly's currency um, waiting to, uh, to get those things to work together. So um, the, the Short answer to your question would be, uh, and this um, applies to your second question, you know, will there ever be a color volume uh, collecting all the various service and health covers and homages in full size, uh, similar to the IDW covers collection? Um, we have to figure out how to make uh, Waverly Press and Argark Anaheim and Diamond Comics uh, work together and dovetail uh, in such a way that it makes business sense uh, to do that, which is probably going to involve, like I say, we'll do the last day and it's okay. This is when, when diamond previews comes in to our guard and uh, I look, I look in it and I go, okay, this is uh, middle of August or in the middle of October, and uh, here it is. So this is the beginning of the process. At what point do people get those books? Did they get the Waverly Press edition that uh, they ordered on Kickstarter? Um, did the stores get them from Diamond? And when did that happen? And if it's, well, okay, they got, <laughs> they got, the, they got the Diamond edition in, uh, you know, June of next year, and they got the uh, Waverly edition in uh, just in time for Christmas next year. And it's like, well, okay, let's let's not do one of those again until we figure out how to move those dates backward, so it it makes more sense. And 
uh, you know, not just say, well, we're certainly going to try and do that. Uh, no, we've got to have a different plan than what, than what we did last time. Uh, Dagan, what do you propose? Um, uh, Matt at, uh, at Diamond, uh, how do you see this working uh, with, with Diamond? And uh, let's, let's, let's start from uh, this is what happened with the last day. Uh, this is unacceptable from Argar Anaheim's point of view. Uh, how do we make it, um, if not completely acceptable, less unacceptable, and then gradually work from there? It's not like we have a, a shortage of projects. Um, Dagan said that uh, um, the 1982 tour book is, is virtually done. It's, you know, it's all put together. Uh, when we're going to do it uh, is, again, going to depend on what's, uh, uh, what's Waverly's uh, deliverology, as they call it, on, uh, um, on, on the last day. And uh, the next one uh, um, that, that Dagan is doing is going to be the ash can for... Um, Turtles 8, which uh, has gotten bumped forward. Uh, the Kickstarter for Turtles 8 is now in March because that's the earliest uh, heritage auction, um, signature auction with the catalog is uh, first, first, second week of March 2023. So we want the Kickstarter to be going at the same time as, uh, as the heritage auction. Um, I'm going to be talking to, uh, to Todd Ignite at Heritage going, is there some way, like, uh, I don't want to interfere with uh, the Heritage auction, but is, some, is there some way that we can change my name to uh, Dave Zim instead of Dave Sim so that uh, I have the last listing in one of the sessions, and when the session is over, you go, because the next session doesn't start until the next day, uh, could you plug our Kickstarter? You know, if you didn't manage to get one of the three Turtles original covers, uh, here's, you know, Dave's descriptions of the covers um, from the giant size trading cards that we're doing. Uh, hey, everybody from Heritage Auctions, head on over to the Turtles Kickstarter and, and don't miss out on, on all of your uh, uh, 750 or 900 and 12 uh, variant covers. No, it won't be that many. It'll, it'll, there will be a number of variant covers, and it's like, um, it's probably pushing it with heritage auctions, and it's like, just no harm in asking. Um, it, would, it would really, really help to have, uh, you know, all of the heritage people finding out, uh, just click this link to this Kickstarter, uh, right in the middle of our Kickstarter, so we already have the the first two weeks under our belts, and uh, whoa, look at the numbers go now. So, and speaking of numbers going now, I have a prayer time coming up in five minutes. So we're, we're at that time of year where we have to split these up into two sections. Uh, hold your thought. I, I know you had something to say about the heritage auctions thing, and, and we'll pick up from there uh, when my prayer time's over. Will do. Okay, I'll call you back. All right, bye. Bye-bye. So, please hold for Dave Sim. Mm -hmm.
again, Dave. Hello again, Matt. Okay, uh, what, what did you have to say about the CGC thing? No, no, no. What I was going to say was, uh, I was going to confirm, the last I heard is the ash cans going on sale November 3rd. That's what I heard as well. Well, that, that, that the way I heard it, it was your decision. <laughs> well, I got it presented to me, and it was like, uh, well, the, um, the fact that there wasn't going to be a heritage auction in, uh, in January, which is what I was hoping for, although a part of me knew, well, okay, the, you know that the first heritage signature oxygen auction, auction is uh, uh, at the very earliest in February. I've never really heard of a January, but it's like, well, maybe, you know, it was the first time for everything. Um, the fact that it wasn't even in February, it's going to be in March. Uh, suddenly you've got um, a, a, a long jump from uh, the last Kickstarter, which was the... Um, uh, the six seven slash seven eight, the uh, um, service number four, and the pieces of turtles eight point two. Uh, that that's another that's another one of those timeline things. This is this is Grandpa's earning his living these days. Uh, it's it's very nice to get you know the large chunk of money, which. Um, I think that um, uh, that Kickstarter was August uh, when it w when it was actually uh, when it was actually held, and then uh, just uh, a week or so ago was when we have con we have confirmation that the uh, the portfolios are arriving. So consequently, I am comfortable with, uh, with getting Rolly to deposit the the money order uh, in the bank account. Um, so it, it's it was uh, it was definitely a good chunk. Um, Twenty uh, five thousand U.S. and I'm gambling that the Canadian dollar has had dropped. Uh, about as low as it's going to go, and uh, deposited all of it into the Canadian account. So the uh, twenty-five thousand U.S. became thirty-three thousand Canadian. Um, but that's okay. Well, how how long does that money have to last? I, I paid the uh, um, uh, the printing bill um, from Studio Comics Press was uh, about uh, 8,000 and then uh, another uh, 4,500 for Rolly's labor and uh, the uh, uh, packaging and, and stuff like that, all, all of the raw materials. Uh, what I'm waiting for is the bill from uh, packaging to for the shipping um, also had to pay the off-white house, house insurance, uh, for the year, uh, which is always comes due in September. And that went up from, 
3,500 to 4,500, which you know it's very nice to know that I have a far more valuable off white house than I did. But since I'm not selling it, that's uh, uh, that's just another chunk. So uh, then it's a matter of okay, uh, how long does that money have to last? And it's one thing to say, okay, got to hang on till Kickstarter in March and the Heritage Auction in March. Uh, I'm not going to get it in March. It's going to be March, April, May, possibly June before I can actually deposit it. And it's like, yeah, I think a uh, Turtles 8 ash can sounds like a wonderful idea. Um, because Dagan is, is definitely talking, he's talking about, um, are you, are you willing to sign them? And it's like, uh, cause if you're willing to sign them, then I'll do them through Alfonso and, uh, you know, Rolly can do the, the shipping. Uh, if you're not going to sign them, then I'll probably get them printed closer to home. And it's like, well, um, Alfonso and Rolly and I are working really well together in terms of uh, turning this stuff around. So um, hopefully uh, the money that comes in on November 3rd, uh, Aardvark Anaheim will actually be uh, depositing uh, its share maybe by first couple of weeks in January or by the end of January and uh, topping up what, whatever is left of... Uh, of the Kickstarter from July and August, we're getting we're getting better at this, and I'm I'm learning to get less paranoid about money. Uh, but you know, one of the ways that I keep uh, uh, keep myself less paranoid about money is uh, by still living like a poor person. Uh, Grandpa's still buying his uh, his dollar store tuna. We're not we're not going crazy with the with the spending because it's like well. You tell me how, how bad inflation is going to get, and I'll tell you what I'm comfortable spending. And it's, well, we have no idea. Well, okay, then. But I have, uh, have no idea either. And we heard from Margaret Liss. Um, second page of the notebook I show there, page 149. I can't find where those page sketches and dialogue were used. A scene not used? Question mark. Why not? Question mark. Thanks. And um, got that uh, got that through on the facts. Thank you. And uh, uh, taking a closer look at it, and then um, uh, Margaret actually uh, uh, relayed um, what her reading was on the page, and I went right. It is it is the death of Weishaupt which uh, I couldn't find because uh, I thought it was around issue 76. It was uh, an unused scene from uh, the death of Weishaupt issue. And uh, no, it was, it was earlier than that when I was still asking my, myself questions about um, Okay, well, uh, which do I want to do? Do I want to uh, build the suspense of is Weishaupt going to make it or is he sinking fast? Is he going to die? 
when is he going to die? Um, and it was it was difficult at the time because that was just uh, uh, coming off of the short story that uh, I hadn't done before. It's like I got uh, I want to give the ambiance of everything that's going on um, uh, in in church and state uh, without um, having to get bogged down in, you know, large blocks of text, although I'm going to use those as well. Um, so when I'm jumping around, do I jump to Weishaupt and then someplace else and then back to Weishaupt and then someplace else? Because uh, there's, there's X number of pages that I've got before uh, I really, you know, have to have to have to start dealing with the the ascension itself, uh, and how many of those pages can I devote to Weishaupt? So it was. Uh, I think I can devote about an issue to Weishaupt. Um, so do I do? part of an issue with Weishaupt dying, or do I do uh, the foreshadowing, uh, is he going to make it, is he not going to make it, and then uh, just use up uh, part of an issue. And at, at, after the point where I wrote that page, and sort of sketched in that page, um, I, I looked at it and went, Okay, how much does this advance the story, uh, and how much is this uh, in order to uh, build attention, um, you know, and and the apprehension about this very important central character dying? Um, where where do I where do I want to be putting that? And that was when I made the decision. Uh, looking at looking at the sketch that, that you're talking about. I liked the, um, um, the mannequin style head with, uh, with Weishaupt's powdered wig on it. And that was about the only part of the sequence that I thought, okay, this is really advancing it. He's not, he's not conscious. He's not really coherent. So it's just uh, people talking about him. Uh, the pacing would would convey what I want to convey, but pacing is eating up pages and eating up panels um, in order to convey, you know, the the seriousness of of this character dying or not dying. Uh, and ultimately decided, no, I, w I think I want to take all of the pages and put them into seventy six. Uh, the kind of pacing that I'm talking about doing uh, right when uh, Weishaupt is dying, uh, I want Cerebus to come and see him, and I want all of the uh, moody panels, um, the silent panels that have the, have the pacing that I'm picturing in my head. Um, Cerebus as a silhouette, uh, against um, Weishaupt's library shelves. I know exactly how I wanted to play it, uh, and it's like, now it's going to be better all there. Um, 
as an example, somebody at, at the level of influence of Weishaupt, at the level of importance of Weishaupt, uh, it would be a much lengthier process uh, once Cerebus got there in the carriage. <coughs> Excuse me. Once Cerebus got there in the carriage to um, uh, actually get in to see Weishaupt, it would be there's there's layers between uh, walking off of the street and and getting in to see Weishaupt, and uh, you'll notice that apart from the large panel of you know Cerebus being welcomed and uh, Weishaupt has has things to tell you. Uh, it goes right from there to just Cerebus and Weishaupt. Uh, again, there would probably be hangers on in the vicinity that uh, Weishaupt would have to get rid of once Cerebus was there and he could see that you know it wasn't a, um, a major security problem and he just didn't want to uh, explain it to Cerebus. So, yeah, it was, it was one of those times that I went, uh, I need to use up a lot of pages on this to have the correct tone for it. Um, and I think I want to be uh, very stingy and a little clever about uh, um, not having the setup go exactly the way it would go in that situation and just really cut to the chase. But the chase is really, really slow. With lots of lots of slow, slow panels and uh, uh, very skimpy dialogue, and uh, it it worked in that sense. But um, the same the same as uh, you know, Cerebus has the physical confrontation with with the dying Weisopt, and, and I'm picturing how to do that, and I'm going, well, I've got him in bed, um, and dying slash not dying. Uh, if, if he's actually dying and he dies in issue 76, how do I get him out of the bed? He, he's got to be sitting up for, uh, for he and Cerebus to have confrontation, uh, that they do. The kind the size of bed that he, he'd have, uh, Cerebus is not going to be able to reach, uh, him from the side of the bed. And, uh, those, that, those are, that's the thinking. That, uh, that you're looking at where, okay, uh, this would be good, but it's not, it's not uh, accomplishing what I need to accomplish. Um, so jettison this part and front load this part over here. Which is kind of weird now that I think about it, because that if that sequence had been put in, it would have been another one of those motifs through the whole series because it's why stop dying in bed uh, there's Melmoth dying in bed there's Sarin in Mothers and Daughters injured in bed possibly dying uh, there's sort of the opening of guys when service is really drunk and, and they're moving them around for the Squint Eye and Pluto signing, where, you know, there's somebody who's unconscious, but they're talking around him. And then it all leads up to the last day where service is in bed. Like, I mean, it's one of them through lines that just, you know, 
I never really thought about it, but now, like, I got a week's worth of blog posts. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> well, you're, you're quite welcome, Matt. Yeah, it is, it is one of those, um, you know, being conscious of that. Uh, do, do I want to jettison that? And, uh, well, uh, no, it, it would be nice to have that, that, con- that through continuity, but you're you're setting you're setting yourself up for okay. How does how does Cerebus smack my wife up if he's in the middle of a uh, president-sized bed? And uh, it's uh, well, um, no, nobody noticed because uh, uh, they they didn't they didn't get to see that part and go uh, okay. I I can't I can't really believe how you did that. Okay, and moving on to Rick. Norwood, and boy, now we get into serious, serious comic art metaphysics, um, because, okay, I've got, the, uh, I've got Rick Norwood's um, um, question, and I'm going to interrupt to, uh, at the beginning to, to front load this. Uh, Rick Norwood is publisher of uh, Comics Review, R-E-V-U-E, and uh, Rick Rick Norwood uh, was the first person to break Dave Sims' con- consecutive issue record, uh, according to Rick. It's uh, you know, I, uh, Comics Review is going to get its issue 300 coming up, and. I didn't know what to say to Rick about that, just as I didn't know what to say to Todd about that, that you're going to break my record. I, I don't think you're doing the same thing that I'm doing, but, um, I, you know, I do want to say, and I did, you know, I do very emphatically say to both Rick Norwood and Todd, uh, congratulations and well done. Uh, there's no, there's no easy way to do, uh, 300 issues of anything and uh, anybody doing 300 issues of something uh, deserves a, a nice round of applause from from Dave Sim. Uh, Rick Norwood is at uh, the latest issue of Comics Review I had come in was uh, he's got, he does double issues now, double issues now uh, to keep the price down was number 435 436 and let me just say to Rick uh, who I hope will be listening uh, but I'm definitely looking forward to the October issue uh, number 437-438 particularly uh, the uh, continuation of Lee Falk and Phil Davis's Mandrake the Magician the Museum Mystery from uh, 1940 uh, definitely a peak form for both of those guys, Lee Falk, uh, writing Mandrake the Magician, and Phil Davis drawing Mandrake the Magician. Uh, Phil Davis, Alex Raymond clone. And uh, I got to say, looking at it going, sweating blood to at least match Raymond's secret agent X-9. And he's definitely very, very close. It, it, uh, 
all of these guys had the same experience with Raymond that I had lifelong experience with Neil Adams. Can I just match what he was doing 40 years ago? I, I don't even I don't even have to catch up to him now. Just 40 years ago would make me hilariously happy. And you can see Phil Davis the same way. Um, you know, a good five years after uh, Alex Raymond left, Secret Agent X9 going. Why can't I do this? Why, I mean, it's uh, I see what he's doing. I want to do it myself, and I'm sweating blood, and it's just not as good as he is. Well, this museum mystery from 1940 is uh, uh, is about about as close as you can get, and uh, it's it's a, you know the, these are these are continued stories, and it's a great thing when I do get hit. Uh, hooked on one of these stories, there's uh, there's complete stories in uh, um, comics review. Usually three of them per issue, and then the rest of them are continued. You get part two, or you get part one, or whatever. And if you get stuck on one, and I'm stuck on the museum mystery from 1940, as soon as it comes in, it's like, okay, I'm not going to read the whole thing because. Um, Comics Review is like 120 pages per issue. Uh, so I, I got to pick my spots, but uh, I want to see Bill Davis sweating blood more and uh, how this museum mystery wraps up. Uh, a lot of fun. The, uh, the Phantom story was, uh, was complete uh, in this issue where the Phantom <laughs> becomes uh, the world, world champion uh, boxing uh, boxing champion uh, as as the masked, masked marvel and uh, really wildly wildly implausible but uh, really fun stories and it's got a happy ending on it it's uh, they, they didn't believe in unhappy endings back then uh, no it looks like you know everything's going unhappily uh, uh, between him and uh, and his girlfriend but uh they, they end up together in the in the jungle at the end. So uh, if, if 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 you're tired of all of these morose twenty first century quote unquote stories unquote, uh, you can't go you can't go too far wrong with uh, uh, Rick Norwood's uh, comics review. So moving on to uh, what Rick said and. Uh, I am rereading Prince Valiant from the beginning to the present day. This is something all of you could do. And he's talking to all of you listeners, at least for the Hal Foster years. Although maybe not in the full page size, which I am privileged to have in my collection. Yes, we're all jealous as heck, Rick. Uh, they are so good. I can't resist sharing a few of the best. Uh, this post is political. Don't read the strip if your mind is closed on subjects political. Uh, most people, uh, and then, okay, here, here we're going to get to Rick Norwood's uh, political assertion. Most people who think seriously about politics agree that a benevolent dictatorship is the best form of government. Uh, examples, Julius and Augustus Caesar, uh, Queen Elizabeth I, and Queen Elizabeth II, the trouble with benevolent dictatorship is that for every one benevolent dictator, there have been 99 malevolent or incompetent dictators. 
as Sir Winston Churchill pointed out, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Prince Valiant is so good, so far and away the best story strip ever, that I hope it survives. But then I think about politics because I hope the human race survives. And then added P.S. Hi, Dave Sim. Uh, your thoughts. Okay, let me so, stop you there real quick. So this was a post in the service Facebook group where it was the, the Prince Valiant image with what Rick said, and then he commented, P.S., Hi, Dave Sim, what do you think? And I'm like, well, since I'm doing the facts anyway, I'll put this in. There you go. Well, okay. So, uh, we, 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 it's a three-way courtship of, uh, of uh, comic art metaphysics because, um, where's his name here? Travis, Travis H., who is actually in Wisconsin. Uh, Trego, Wisconsin, uh, September 24th, uh, he uh, uh, mailed me a comic strip that has a please hold for Dave Sim question at the end of it. Obviously thinking if he mails it from Wisconsin, September 24th, it'll get there in time for uh, the first Thursday uh, in October, not knowing that uh, we were going to skip a week and uh, only picked up the mail today. So I open up this envelope from Travis and it's got a hand-drawn comic strip in it, which Roly has scanned and emailed to you to put on um, Please Hold for Dave Sim. And I'm looking at uh, what Rick Norwood had to say and uh, uh, I'm thinking... Okay, I got a rough idea of uh, uh, what I'm what I'm going to say about this, um, but not specifically. Uh, let's let's open up the other mail that we got here. So I opened up uh, Travis's package, and it was uh, a comic strip where I went. Actually, that that says a lot of uh, what I would have to say to uh, uh, to Rick. Uh, uh, um, how about that? Uh, there's. There's a weird uh, comic art metaphysics thing. Um, now, I've got Travis's letter here somewhere. I hope I do. And, well, I can't. I can't find it. But anyway, he, he recreated uh, two panels. Um, from uh, uh, Detective 27, Joe Schuster's spy and Jerry Siegel's spy story, first two panels, and uh, then he, uh, he did a panel from uh, um, one of, one of uh, Steve Ditko's uh, comics, and then he put the police hold question at the end. And the, um, the uh, dialogue that he wrote in into these panels is from a book called uh, The Iron Heel by Jack London, 1908. And it's uh, the future. The people of that age were phrase slaves. The abjectness of their servitude was incomprehensible to us. There was a magic in words. 
greater than the conjurer's art. So befuddled and chaotic were their minds that the utterance of a single word could negative the generalizations of a lifetime of serious research and thought. Such a word was the adjective utopian. The mere utterance of it could damn any scheme, no matter how sanely conceived. Vast populations grew frenzied over such phrases such as, quote, an honest dollar, unquote, and, quote, a full dinner paid, unquote. The coinage of such phrases were considered strokes of genius. And it's like, that's very well said. That's very well said. And then uh, uh, he's got a, a, a panel of, uh, from Steve Ditko's mystery, uh, now, and it's misogynist, Nazi, phobe, phobe, phobe. It's like pick a noun, put phobe on the end of it, and it's exactly that thing. It's uh, a single word could negative the generalizations of a lifetime of serious research and thought. And we, we really, really need to knock it off, uh, I think. So that, uh, that having been said, then I can go on to, uh, okay, it's still, uh, this is still way, way too, too big a subject that, uh, that Rick has presented me with here. So uh, as I always try to do, it's like okay, uh, type it out on the laptop so that you can you can keep it confined. Because if you just start talking, you're just going to you're just going to gibber at these poor people, and you've already been gibbering at them for for almost two hours. So that, uh, what I had to, what I had to say, uh, Rick, is Julius and Augustus Caesar were no one's idea of benevolence. The dictator ultimately always has to kill his opponents. And the more opponents he kills, the more opponents he creates. Queen Elizabeth I and Queen Elizabeth II. And uh, on the latter, uh, may flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. And God save the king were titular heads, the latter more than the former. Parliamentary democracy and English invention supersedes monarchical dictatorship. As a monotheist, aligning with what I see as God's master clockwork mechanism. So long as the will of the people individually and collectively is expressed, everything proceeds, however fitfully, to where we are going more ladders than snakes. Anything that oppresses, suppresses, or invalidates the will of the people is doomed to failure because it keeps us from where we are going. Freedom of expression can only be slowed. It can't be stopped. The Shah is replaced by the Ayatollah because the Ayatollah is a more honest expression of the will of the people. The people in this case being Shiite Muslims in 1979. 44 years later, the will of the people reverts back in the direction of the Shah. Turkey has ping-ponged back and forth through most of the last century on this definition of true Islam. 
it becomes the iron fist and then it relaxes and it becomes the iron fist and relaxes. Not relative to, uh, to Western democracy, it never relaxes. It's always just the iron fist. But in their own context, uh, that's the situation. So applying this to Alita, Queen of the Misty Isles, uh, quote, first she makes everyone happy except her treasurer by reducing taxes. The mounting prosperity of her kingdom will more than make up the loss, unquote. Well, this works up to a point, the point where you need to invent unimaginably large amounts of money to keep the game going. But we're long past that point relative to the debts we, the people, owe. The taxes collected aren't a drop in a bucket. Something has to give, but we're not sure what. Quote, next she banishes several overly ambitious citizens, unquote. Quote, overly ambitious, unquote, is a subjective viewpoint. King George III would have regarded George Washington as, quote, overly ambitious, unquote. Washington's personal ambition was beside the point. He and the Continental Congress's intellectual ambition was to work as quickly as possible towards a refinement of parliamentary democracy to limit the ability of government to interfere in the expression of God-given free will. The first of all moral and second of all material success of appropriate ambition attained, attained, let me try that again. The first of all moral and second of all material success of appropriate ambition attained to speaks for itself. Quote, Queen Alita appoints a Congress of men from all walks of life, unquote. An appointed Congress can only be an arbitrary Congress, and God's will expressed through the trial and error of his creations, quote, men of well thinking, unquote, being the more literal translation of the more popular, quote, men of goodwill, unquote, is anything but arbitrary and can't be coerced. Getting back to the comic art metaphysics of this, uh, Travis was, uh, had just gotten a Windsor Newton Series 7 number 2 brush in the mail and had decided to start working on this comic strip that he was working on to uh, test out his, uh, his Windsor Newton Series 7 number 2 brush. And at the exact time that he was doing that, he was reading The Strange Death of Alex Raymond, and he got to the page with Raymond sharpening the brush and went, hey, thanks for the tip. I actually printed that page out when I was doing the Matisse cover of, okay, I know how to ink now, and it's like, yeah, I didn't buy a Windsor Newton Series 7 number 2 sable hair brush. I bought the $4, hey, it's got a number two on the back of it someplace brush, and went, and it's like, I don't know what I'm doing, but at the same time, it's like, well, I can't screw it up because I'm, I'm pretty much doing this for myself, and if I don't like it, nobody sees it, and if I kind of like it, I'll show people, and if I really like it, I'll ask for money. Right. But yeah, that's, um, that, that is kind of a weird, whoop, you know, within... 
two, three weeks of each other, all this stuff's happening. <laughs> yeah, and then all um, swirled around uh, uh, today, and all 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 fell into place uh, exactly at the time that it needed to. Which to me is that's when you know that you're on the right track of something because you're aligning yourself with God's clockwork mechanism. You're not freelancing, not going, let's see if I can get away with this. <laughs> it's, it's God. You can't get away with anything. How are you going to get away with something with someone who's omniscient? So uh, getting, getting to Travis's please hold for Dave Sim question, in the last panel he's got uh, Little Orphan Annie asking Dave Sim, Mr. Sim, why did you start using the Qbert font rather than having one created from your own lettering? Uh, because I, I like the Qbert font better than my own lettering. First of all, uh, it's technically better. I always wanted to be able to letter um, like a newspaper strip letterer in the classic days um, or you know the letterers that they had at Marvel uh, Tom Orzhikowski when I first when I first knew of him he was uh, I saw his lettering in Media 5 I think I've told this story before and I went it looks like comic book lettering My, mine looks nice and I, it's very expressive and it's got it's its own quality to it but um if I was to hand letter Rip Kirby, if I was to uh, hand letter um, an Al Williamson uh, Warren story, uh, I would just be dragging the whole thing down. It would be, uh, don't do that. Um, a, a, a good professional uh, lettering look is, uh, uh, is a, a rising tide uh, floats all boats. It's, uh, you, you've already, you've already made things easier on yourself just by going in that direction. Uh, speaking as a writer, uh, I can change stuff a, a lot more easily. And, um, like that doesn't answer the, why wouldn't I have it created from my own lettering? It's, uh, I, I'm doing the strange death of Alex Raymond and, I really want it to be in the same category as um, Heart of Julia Jones, um, Rip Kirby, um, Al Williamson's Secret Agent X-9. Uh, all, all of those strips uh, definitely had the, the classic lettering style to it. So uh, the automatic leg up or what it is that I'm doing visually that comes from uh, using the keyword font and the fact that uh, I'm able to write and letter simultaneously. When, I, when I'm mocking up the pages, uh, particularly the last week or so, I'm dealing with very, very intricate subjects where I'm going, okay, that I understand what I'm talking about, uh, but nobody else has a frame of reference for this. So how do I explain what I know in my head so that it all fits on this page? And then I sit down and, and type it out 
uh, is, as individual captions and then print it out on my printer and cut out the lettering and uh, glue it with, uh, with uh, um, masking tape, uh, just rolls of masking tape. I roll it up so that I can just stick it on the back and then stick it lightly to the page and then read it. Does this say what I want to say? Because it's uh, the first thing's been taken care of. Yes, it all fits on this page. That's my biggest concern. Um, where, what panels am I, am I going to excerpt from uh, from Rip Kirby and use them to illustrate what's in the captions? Okay, I have a pretty good idea what that is. Now, is there are there pieces missing from the concept that I'm trying to convey. And it's like, usually, usually there is, because um, that's not the, uh, what specifically I'm trying to say isn't the problem that I'm solving at the time. Uh, the problem that I'm solving is, does this all fit in one place? Once that's solved, then I get to, okay, uh, what, am I, uh, what am I actually saying here? And Usually, it's a situation where, okay, um, this has a nice word rhythm to it, but um, these two sentences that I have in one caption are going to be better if, uh, if they're um, two different captions, at which time I go, okay, does everything still fit on the page? Yes, it does, but I have to move it around a little bit so that I've got a room for uh, the two captions that used to be one caption. Um, a lot of a lot of time, I start reading it and I go, "Oh, okay. Um, I need to go across the panel, uh, so I need to put this caption on this side of the panel that I photocopied out of the Rip Kirby book, and then they have to read the Rip Kirby panel, and then I have to." pick up on the internal logic of what's in the panel or sometimes quote what's in the panel because it's like, okay, um, you're just reading this as a panel from a comic strip, but there's a larger sense being conveyed here. So I'm going to have to quote it in a caption. So you have, here's the original uh, caption or word balloon. Here's me quoting it. Here's me explaining why this is more important than just um, this is Ward Green getting Alex Raymond from panel one to panel three, so he needs to say this in panel two. Uh, that's far easier to do when I'm looking at something that already looks like um, a classic newspaper strip. Um, Heart of Juliet Jones went back and forth. Uh, Stan Drake tried a number of different things and tried uh, machine lettering. And um, boy, you really no notice it. It's just a completely different voice when I was looking at his originals at uh, uh, Syracuse University. And uh, this, um, it, it was hand lettered before that, but he's going, no, it's slowing me down. I have to, I have to, you know, get one of the guys in Connecticut that does lettering to do my lettering, and that's taking up, you know, a day or two that if, uh, if I can just find a way to print out the lettering myself and stick it in, then that's an extra two days for the drawing. 
And it's like, boy, I can see the argument because looking at it, I'm going, yeah, uh, the, the extra day or the extra two days that he had for inking and penciling uh, are definitely on uh, uh, in the strip uh, exactly the way he intended it. But boy, does the, the, the lettering ever look lousy. And that's one of those... Once you're doing it yourself, you go, okay, you don't, you don't want to trade this for that. Um, you're trading, trading too much for too little. Um, I, I appreciate the, the implied compliment when people say, you know, why didn't, why didn't you get just, uh, you know, your own, your own lettering, uh, uh, a font created that you could, you could do on, uh, on the laptop. It's, uh, no, I'd be I'd be talking about Alex Raymond and Ward Green and Stan Drake and Al Williamson and Neil Adams and all of these guys in a very intense, very specific way, and reading it in Cerebus's voice. And it's like, no, well, Cerebus is Cerebus. It's uh, um, that that's where it belongs. This belongs in uh, um, Strange Death of Alex Raymond. I think, I think it was in Glamour Puss or around the time of Glamour Puss where you had said, somebody said, why aren't you hand lettering it? And you're like, because you wanted it to look like Ben Oda lettered it. And the closest you found was the Kubert font. Right. Right. And that, I mean. Yeah. And, it, it, and, and that's, uh, that's entirely true. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure what it was about the Cubert font, but it was uh, no. That's that's the look that I want because I did see a uh, a Ben Oda font later on. I don't know if Comic Craft had done it, um, and I went, uh, "That's Ben Oda. That's the guy who had had the keys to uh, uh, pretty much every cartoonist's house in in Connecticut, so he could let himself in." and sit down and do the lettering while they were sleeping. And, uh, no, I, I, I like the Kubert font better, which, um, is surprising because I, I never really noticed, uh, noticed Joe's lettering on the stuff of himself, uh, or the stuff that, uh, that he lettered himself. And I think that had to do with the fact that, um, DC comics had some of the best letterers, at the time, Jasper Saladino and, and, and people like that. And those are the guys who lettered uh, all of Kubert's uh, Our Army at War and Sergeant Rock and stuff. So it's like, I would look at, at, at Joe's lettering on his own work, his independent work that he was doing outside of DC. And it's like, oh, couldn't you have gotten Gosper Saladino to, to letter it? It would have looked so much better because uh, it, it just goes together like ham and eggs. And it's like, uh, I, not having seen the keyword font apart from, um, you know, Joe's lettering himself, it's like, as soon as I saw it apart, it's like, Wow, that's more Ben Oda than Ben Oda. Uh, maybe I need to look at a Gaspar Celadino font. Um, I wonder. I wonder if there is one. I'm sure there is. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure there is. I mean, 
I always think, well, okay, it doesn't, you know, things don't uh, move along quite that that rapidly and thoroughly until, uh, you know, David Birdsong's faxing me uh, pages from uh, Art Barkey and Splendor, and it's like, well, son of a gun, uh, of course there's a Robert Crumb font. Uh, how, how many guys are doing... Um, indie comics and, and underground comics, and they just ache to look like uh, like Robert Crumb. Well, okay, here's here's your leg up. It's not uh, it's not the best plot in the world, but uh, it's very very authentically Robert Crumb. I forget the name of the website. There was a site that was doing it where you could create your own font and it was free. But but once you created it, it got put into their database of fonts and when they've reached a certain threshold then they were going to start charging people and I printed right. out the template and I was like I really sh you know, should go through old service comics and work out a, a Dave font and I and it was one of those it's like yeah but at the same time you know is it worth it to do it and then, and then I'm pretty sure Sean ended up having to make an early service font for the remastering because there were you know the P's that look like D's, and you know, replacing some of them and and fixing some of the errors that were in the first volume. I you know I believe he might have made one, and I've asked him like, hey, did you make one? And he he never really responds when I ask, <laughs> which you know, leads me uh, to believe that the answer is yes, but you can't have it. <laughs> which is um, short short-sighted I mean that's that's up to whoever made the font uh, we we know it's going that way I mean uh, I don't think grandpa is going to be in the ground too long before somebody goes he's dead really okay I get to do my service stories now and here's here's the Dave Sim font and uh, you know uh, they're going to talk themselves into the fact that yeah, I'm, I'm showing Dave Sim how it's done, just as I keep hoping that I can do that with, uh, with Neil Adams. I will, I, will show, I will show Neil Adams how Neil Adams is done properly. So, like the, uh, go ahead. So that kind of segues into something that just happened to me this afternoon when I was getting out of work. I got an alert from Heritage that, about a Dave Sim piece that was coming up for auction, and I went, looked at it and went, well, how much is it going for? And it was only at a dollar, so I'm like, all right, I'll throw some money at this. And it's an original, undated piece by Wayne Robinson and Dave Sim. It's a... I'm trying to phrase this nicely in case you're the one that drew it, but I think Wayne might have been. It's a... Uh, a homage, if you will, to uh, the Batman on the cover of Detective 241, or Batman 241, I forget what the description was, and it's you know, it's very much a Neil Adams knockoff that very much looks like it's not Neil Adams, and it's colored, so I don't know if you drew it and he colored it, or if you colored it and he drew it, or if one of you inked it, one of you penciled it, or what, but right now, last I checked, I'm winning it 26 bucks. Close. I don't know, but I'm hoping if I tell everybody I'm bidding on this, you got to let this one go. 
I mean, it's it it's not a great piece of art, but I think it's gonna have it's one of those where it's got that pedigree of this is early, you know, pre-service Dave Sim, and or this is Dave at a convention being real nice to the guy at the table next to him who's like, hey, could you color this? Oh well, no, no, no. Uh, Wayne Robinson was uh, a collector in town uh, when I was. Uh, um, Still living at my parents' place, still still in the basement, and uh, uh, you know, do, doing comics, but mostly just being a uh, comic collector nerd in uh, in my parents' basement. And uh, Wayne Robinson lived over in Forest Heights, and was married and had, I think, two kids uh, at the time, uh, and met him at. Uh, at Now and Then Books, because that's where I spent my life, was, uh, you know, drinking drinking Harry's tea in the kitchen for free at uh, Now and Then Books when it was at 103 Queen Street South. And uh, met Wayne Robinson, and he was one of the few guys that uh, knew all of the same stuff that I did about uh, um, Golden Age uh, DC comics and was a collector of Golden Age DC comics. So it's like, wow, here's a guy that, that I can uh, show off to. You know, uh, look at my uh, uh, Superman number 10, and my uh, Superman number 22, and uh, my, uh, my World's Finest number 7, and uh, invited him over to my parents' place. And that was, that was weird, having somebody visiting me who is was probably closer to my dad's age um, than, than, than my age at the time. But uh, the uh, shared comics interest uh, at the time when uh, it was very clandestine and illicit was, uh, was baked in uh, on that. So I think the, the situation was that uh, either he copied the figure and I inked and colored it, or I copied the figure and he inked and colored it. Um, I, I'd be willing to bet he doesn't know either. I, I saw him at uh, um, uh, the local, local comic shop. Uh, uh, how long ago would that be? Six years ago? Five years ago? And he goes, uh, I bet you don't remember the name Wayne Robinson. <laughs> and I went, Are you kidding? You were the you were the major DC fan. You were the you were the guy that I could talk to about uh, World's Finest Number Seven having uh, the first appearance of uh, of, of, uh, of Batman with his with his white snow costume and uh, an appearance by the Golden Age Sandman in the back and. This is Superman 17 with the first appearance of the Fortress of Solitude. And you could nod and go, and what about uh, the first appearance of Mr. Mixian's Pitlick in uh, service number 30? Yeah, yeah, that wasn't actually on the cover, but, uh, and it was spelled differently in the first appearance. The second appearance, uh, for some reason, Jerry Siegel changed the, uh, and we could just talk for hours like that because it's like, 
wow, this is exactly like talking to somebody in my head. <laughs> well, the, the piece is signed by both of you, so if I win, I'll let you know. I mean, I'll, I'll, okay. probably, I'll probably grab the uh, image off of Heritage and send it to Raleigh to, you know, print out in color and show you and be like, oh, yeah, I I never wanted to see that Batman again. <laughs> well, I, I'd be interested to see it just from the standpoint of I, I don't remember this. And, uh, well, how, how about that? Because uh, obviously, obviously I did it. Where, where would... Where would somebody counterfeiting a Dave Sim come up with the name Wayne Robinson? Well, it's from the Darren Shan collection. So, you know, I'm sure that Darren didn't just buy it because somebody had scribbled your name on it. Right, right. Okay, I think that's a wrap. Matt, let's see if I'm, I'm missing anything here. I think, no, we got all the way to the end. So. And, uh, let's see... Yeah, I gave away all my October surprises during this, so I have nothing else at the end. Aww. Oh, wait, 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 I do. I forgot. I even wrote a note to ask. So the Flash Gordon volumes you have, those are the Kitchen Sink Press ones? Uh, no, they're the IDW. Oh, okay. See, I have the inferior old Kitchen Sink Press thinner volumes. Yeah, we we don't even walk across the street and throw rocks at them. <laughs> it, I don't know if I ever told you this. So uh, years ago, I was doing something and I had a kitchen sink book, and I met and then I, and I mentioned the name Dennis Kitchen to my mom, and my mom went, "Oh, I went to college with him," and I'm like, "What? Oh yeah," and and she you know was telling me, "Oh yeah, oh I had- my God, Wisconsin, right, right, right." And I'm like, I'm like, what? Oh yeah, he. We had a creative writing class together, and he he was one of the guys in the class. I'm like, well, okay, what what do you know about this? I mean, like, major figure in comics in Matt's mind, some guy she kind of knew in college in my mom's mind. I'm like, well, you, know, you got to have some stories, mom. Uh, he gave great notes in our creative writing class, but and he was kind of a weirdo. But other than that, no, I don't really remember him. And I thought at one point she said that. Like he had asked her out on a date and she had turned him down, and and it's one of those every time Dennis Kitchen's name comes up, I'm like, oh yeah, my mom went to college with him. People are like, really? And I'm like, you know, if they're in the comics, I'm like, yeah. What was he like? She really doesn't have any stories. <laughs> that's that's hilarious. Yeah, we we always you always think that famous comic book people just sort of appear in thin air. At some point, it's like no, we we got backstories of uh, uh, of people who uh, who famous famously ignored us. <laughs> uh, quick quick story, I gotta go because the last prayer time is coming up at, uh, at two minutes to eight. Okay. Uh, the uh, uh, the plumber that I had in, I, I don't know if I got really to send you the picture of uh, uh, the plumber came in to uh, uh, do some plumbing stuff that I've been putting off and he walks in and he's got a uh, Superman crest tattoo on the inside of his forearm <laughs> and it's like oh, okay well you just came in through the Superman entrance let me show you my uh, my Joe Sh- my letter from um, Joe Schuster's sister uh, um, uh, to Dave Sim on the one side and the picture that I drew of Joe Schuster for the Schuster Awards 
And uh, here's uh, my two-page letter from Jerry Siegel when we worked on Ricky Robot on the other side, and he's just going like, wow, wow, wow. And I said, now don't you charge me for this time, because I'm going to let you read the letters. Uh, and it's like, no, 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 wow, wow. So we, we, we took a picture. But even before that, when I was phoning uh, the plumber to say uh, this, this is what I want to have done. And uh, missed the person that I was supposed to talk to, the person who sets it all up. Name's Holly. Okay, talk to Holly. And uh, it's, uh, um, hi, Holly. Uh, I, I'd like to get some uh, some plumbing done. And this is the thing I want done. This is the thing I want done. She went, uh, okay, that's... Uh, that, that sounds like pretty basic stuff. Do you want this thing? Do you want that thing? Go through all of that. And she goes, uh, have you ever uh, used uh, our plumbing service before? And I said, yes, I have. I said, okay, I'll, I'll check for your information on our database. Uh, what's your name? And I went, uh, Dave Sim, S-I-M. And she goes, oh, my God, Evad. It's Evad. I'm going, Evad, there's not a lot of places that I was Evad the anti-Dave. The only one that I can think of is Peter's place. And she goes, it's Holly, Hollywood. Her her name is literally Hollywood. And I'm going, she was, she was part of the crowd at Peter's place. Uh, she hung around with uh, um, Val who is in France now, has been in France for a while. And uh, Helen, who married Dino, you know Dino from, uh, from Melvin. And uh, they, were, they were for me, Helen and Holly and Val. Oh my, <laughs> Helen and Holly and Val. Oh my. So uh, I, I autographed uh, uh, three copies of uh, uh, flailing at love and and indicated I I didn't write this one David Bursaw wrote this one I I just tweaked it and I personalized it on the front each one of them to Helen and Holly and Val oh my <laughs> Helen and Holly and Val oh my and made the lettering bigger on each one I said you decide who gets which one so <laughs> that was one of those okay just just going that that was weird enough and in walks the guy with the with the superman tattoo and uh he he, he was just absolutely bubbling didn't have the uh, the connection for the shower head that he needed so went over to a local supply place to uh to pick one of those up and he just had, had to babble with the guy behind the counter uh you know that uh it's it's this cartoonist and and his name's Dave Sim. And he goes, Dave Sim, you went to the off-white house? <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute. I'm completely unknown in Kitchener. Let's, can we get back to completely unknown in Kitchener? Anyway, on that note, we will we will leave off because I'm, I'm almost late for my prayer time. Okay. Have a good night, Have a good night, Matt. You too, Dave. We'll do this again next week. I hope so. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.